reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we do eagerly wait. We long for the day in which you remake us, which you establish us back into a place and a state of being that is right with you. So, Father, thank you for the salvation that you've given us, and please use the word and the preaching of the gospel this morning through Pastor Daniel, that that restoration may begin again in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There we go. i got to unmute myself. I'm making the sound guy look bad. My name is Daniel, and I am the pastor of worship and prayer here at Christ Community Church. Normally, I am leading worship. A lot of familiar faces, but if you're a guest with us, um, I usually get to, to serve in a different way, but I love getting the opportunity to preach God's word, and I'm so grateful to get to do it this morning. As a show of hands, who here made any New Year's resolutions? Right? Wait, wait, wait. You can hear, you can hear the murmur. We live in a time where New Year's resolutions are broadly mocked. The uh, standard answer for, hey, got any New Year's resolutions is, yeah, I made the resolution not to resolve to do anything. <clears throat> and the skepticism around them is not surprising. According to the University of Scranton, who published a study in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, the national success rate for consistently adhering to a resolution, does anybody have a guess? 8%. There you go, Christopher Randall. 8%. So, the question that, that is presented to us today is why, with the terrible success rates, do we make resolutions at all? Even throughout the year, we have these moments where we summon our will and sometimes even take us a, a solemn oath and direct our energies into doing or being something different. How many of you have made a commitment like this? I'm not gonna smoke or drink, or look at pornography, or yell, or whatever, after today, after this moment. Or I'm gonna lose 50 pounds, and eat solely a gluten-free, vegan, free-range, low-sodium, low-fat, low-carb diet, which leaves you with like grass and, and ice to eat. <laughs> or I'm gonna hike more, and watch less TV. I'm gonna, in some way, gather the fruit of life and juice it down and drink every last drop of it. <laughs> but we do it with religious stuff too. I'm gonna evangelize my neighbors. I'm gonna pray for three hours every morning <laughs> and read the whole Bible twice before February. <laughs> now apparently there are 8% of you out there who are able to pull this off. But for the 92% of us who seem to inevitably fail, what is the result of that? Well, usually in our failure, we've, the reason people give up making resolutions 
is because we discover ourselves lost in frustration and shame and despair and caught by that horrible monster of self-pity. And we start to find ways to blame others or our circumstances or our pasts for why we can't be successful. Worst of all, we blame God, whether directly or indirectly. If you hadn't made me this way, if you hadn't had me born into this family or with this particular story. And all of a sudden, these noble goals that we're striving for become bitter remembrances of our total failure of will. And we don't want to own that. We want somebody else to own that. And in this way, instead of resolutions being a life-giving compass heading to steer our ships by, they become monuments to our failure. And then they become a burden in our memory, and then a chain, and then a jail cell. And then they start to smell and taste like death to us. But frequently, the flip side of the coin is just as bad. We find in our success that we become proud or arrogant and legalistic. When I got sober, the Lord took drugs and alcohol and cigarettes away from me, but I was still totally given over to my sexual immorality. And after about a year of being sober, the Lord made it abundantly clear, this must go. You have to give this to me. And I said, no, I've given you everything else this, is, this has been my constant companion for 15 years. I can't, I can't give this up. And so, of course, we all know how that goes when you're fighting against God in something. And finally, things got so painful for me. I remember a day where I said out loud in pure desperation, God, I can't do this anymore. I trust that your will for me in this part of my life is better than mine. And for a year... I was totally celibate from pornography, from other people. And I was, I was interning at a church and I was starting to counsel people regarding you know, uh, celibacy and all that kind of stuff. And a year, almost, almost to the day, a year from that moment that I, I turned that part of my life over to the Lord, I fell into sexual sin with somebody. And I went and I confessed it immediately to my pastors. I got removed from ministry like I should have, like they did the whole thing. And then for the next two years, I continued to struggle back and forth. And and, in looking back at that year of celibacy, I realized about six months into it, my counsel to the young people who came and talk to me changed. When, the, when somebody would come in and share that they were struggling with lust or, or, or sleeping with their girlfriend or pornography or whatever, it went from being throw yourself in humble desperation upon the Lord to, well, you should really get on the train that I'm on. You should just kind of do things the way that I'm doing it. You should do, be better, basically, was the, was the uh, advice that I gave them. You should be this way instead of the way that you are. And it was pride that I had done this thing. It went from being gratitude to pride. And in our success, we run the risk of doing exactly this, becoming like Nebuchadnezzar. One of my favorite stories is from Daniel chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar, the king who inherited the kingdom of Babylon, sure, he did some stuff to to expand it, but he inherits this kingdom, is walking around on the top of this palace, overlooking the city of Babylon, and he says, behold, great Babylon, 
which I have created. And it says as he's, as he's exalting himself as the king of kings over this, this city, it says while the words were still in his mouth, God struck him with madness. And he went and he, and he lived like a beast in the field for seven seasons. And it wasn't until he confessed the lordship of, uh, the, the kingship of, of God and said, no, 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 you are the one who causes kingdoms to rise and fall. You are the one who raises up rulers and casts them down. It wasn't until then that his sanity, it said immediately my sanity was restored to me. We run the risk of, of doing that because pride comes before a fall. So with all of these problematic elements, still season after season, year after year, we continue to muster up the effort and make plans and commitments to do things differently. And why do we do that? The answer is because we all have an awareness that we aren't what we should be. Whether you are a Christian, whether you are an atheist, we all have an awareness that we're not who or what we should be. Everyone, even the most zen out, live in the moment, running, marathon running, successful business owning, God-loving parent slash spouse of the year knows they aren't who they really should be. Sorry to use you as an example there, Daniel. <laughs> I, I wrote this way before I met you, that particular line. But we all have that thing inside of us that screams, I'm not complete yet. I'm not finished yet. And Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, for we know that, the, that our earthly tent, our earthly body, our earthly, the, the, the earthly life that we have been given, we know that our earthly tent we live in, is, if, if it is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but rather clothed, so that mortality might be swallowed up by life. We want the real clothing that God has for us. There's a part of us that knows that this isn't our true identity. And that though God has given us a particular time and context to inhabit these bodies, that they're not what they should be and they're not what they will be. They feel like the wrong tent. We read it in Romans 8, 19 through 23, when it talks about the creation groaning. We're longing for adoption. We're longing to be, to be rescued from this. We all have the ingrained eternal awareness of our fallen and incomplete state. As kind of an aside, this has been really helpful for me in fostering compassion for those who genuinely struggle with gender dysphoria. I'm not talking about the sociology about it, uh, regarding it. I'm not talking about the politics of it. I'd be happy to discuss my thoughts on that at another time. But I can totally identify with the feeling that I'm not currently in the body that I should be. And that's, caused, that's given me compassion for this group of people that I don't understand well. Anyway, 
But much of the chaos of our culture seems to stem from people trying to find a way to be comfortable in their own skin, be comfortable in their own tent. We medicate, whether with drugs or alcohol or pornography or or prescriptions, or we get surgery, we alter ourselves, or we switch ideologies, we deconstruct our faith because we can't hold intention some of the things that, that, that it says. Or we, we become extra fundamentalist and we try to impose our faith on everything or our, our, our ideologies on everything. Or we just outright lie about the nature of our imperfections. We just tell everybody, no, 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 no. You're perfect just the way you are. And we know, though, and we, and we do it because we're trying to get comfortable in our tent. We're trying to be comfortable But most of the time, the people who are really happy, the people that you look at and think they have a contentedness in life are those who have figured out how to be grateful for the tent that they have while holding on to the hope that it's not all that there is for them. People like Johnny Erickson Tata come to mind. When you hear the joy that she has in, in, in life, the contentedness that she has in being a, a, a quadriplegic, and yet your heart is thrilled by her discussions of what she's going to do when her body is healed, when she, when she receives this heavenly tent. It's a happiness that comes from finding our right place in God's story. Yes, this is God's given tent, for this moment to be grateful for and to steward and to use. It's what Paul earlier calls in in 2 Corinthians, these jars of clay, these temporal identities. But we also know that we have a better one, a truer one, a freer one, guaranteed to us by the work of Jesus Christ. And eventually God himself will reveal our truest identity. There's this picture that I just, I love. Imagine after all of the brokenness of family and, and abuse and the destructive things that we see around, the, 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 the fallenness of humanity, the violence that we commit against one another, the brokenness that you've experienced, blindness and deafness and infirmity, all these things. You walk into the presence of the Lord that you've, you've had to struggle with these things and now you've stepped into the, the presence of God and he calls you by a name that your heart recognizes, yes, yes, that is who I am. That is who I am. That is who I've been longing to be. That is the, that is the, the clothing that I've been longing to put on and be covered by. And all of us, again, it doesn't matter if you are a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or a a Hindu, all of us long for this transformation. And our resolutions are born out of that. Whether they are New Year's resolutions or resolutions throughout the year. So what should we do? Should we make resolutions? I'm sorry about my beard. I know I have the best beard on staff, but (laughs) it gets involved in the microphone. So should we And there's some debate as to whether or not resolutions, New Year's resolutions are biblical or even helpful. But personally, I think that they are. And here's here's why. 
God gave us the ability to track the seasons and the years. And why would he do that if not for the purpose of embracing these periods of transition? Genesis 1.14 says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens, of the heavens, to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And then throughout the Bible, God gives these significant moments. Sometimes they're these massive one-time events where he gives somebody a new name or he establishes a new covenant or, or, or he, he saves a sinner like Paul on the Damascus Road. These one-time things where everything is different from that moment forward. But sometimes he gives people repetitive things to keep coming back to, festivals and feasts, even the monuments, even the temple. He gives days of remembrance and days of, of repentance and days of atonement. He gives them as opportunities to, to regularly revive and reaffirm all that God has done. And sometimes he gives us just this morning or just this evening or just this minute, just this hour because God in his graciousness understands that we need starts and stops. He gives us rhythms of effort and, and rest and success and failure and celebration and mourning. And in this pattern, God knows that we need new beginnings. And it would seem that New Year resolutions kind of fits in that rhythm. Additionally, God has given us the ability to strive He's given us agency. In fact, he's made it something that even our, our, our bodies respond exceptionally well to. Striving physically, also known as exercise, <laughs> causes our bodies to grow in strength and immunity to disease and resilience and, re and its ability to rest and recover. It's not the exercise itself that produces the health. It's the body's response to the exercise. And it's the same for our minds, and it's the same for our spirits. We strive, we grind like a spiritual boxer or sprinter like Paul talks about. And God uses that to produce spiritual health. When God created the earth, he enabled Adam to participate in it. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue is warfare language. Subdue the earth. Rule over the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. God blessed them with the command to use their agency, to apply our will and our effort into the continuing work of God. And in the same way, he invites us into his recreation of all things. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is in charge of the recreation. But he gives us things like prayer and worship and meditation upon his word and sacrificial service to participate in his recreation of us and the recreation of all things. In, in a season of discouragement, in a season where it's easy to be discouraged, 
I need you to listen to me. Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is making all things new. And he invites us to put our effort into that, including in our own lives. And things like New Year's resolutions can be a valuable part of jumping in to that recreation. And lastly, God himself established resolutions. And we call them covenants and promises. Read the book of Isaiah and write down every time that God says, I will do this or that. For every one of those resolutions, he has made or he will make them come to pass. And as his image bearers, we have the capacity to make resolutions that way. But as image bearers of God, we should be very careful about making public resolutions. Because when we fail to keep them, not only do we bring our character into question, we bring into question the character of the one whose image we are a reflection of. And I am tremendously guilty of this. I was reminded this morning at nine o'clock by a, a, a nine-year-old. I'm not kidding. You didn't never brought cereal over to our house. That was like two years ago. <laughs> and no, and it, not only does it cast aspersion on my character, cast dispersion on the God that I'm preaching about. So we need to be very, very careful. It's why we're instructed to avoid oaths, these grand public declarations of our commitment. Rather, we're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. So, with making resolutions, how do we deal with the problematic elements of our resolutions? How do we make resolutions that are biblical and helpful? How do we avoid falling into the trap, traps of failure and shame or success and pride? Well, three things to remember when making resolutions. Number one, remember that if you are a Christian, God has made a resolution for you. He's made a resolution about you. Read with me Romans 8, 28 through 29. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Here's his resolution for you. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God has made this resolution. In his grace and his love for you, God has not only declared you to be righteous, he is actually making you righteous. He's filling the earth with the image of Christ. This is a terrible analogy, but I'm gonna give it anyway. It's like God is looking at you through the filter of Christ, and he sees you. He sees the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. He still knows that you're way off over here. But through the process of justification and sanctification, God is working to conform you, not just to be covered by the righteousness of Christ, but to match it, to be in the image of it. And this is the greatest gift that God will give to you, not just to adopt you into sonship, but to make you like his son. 
Now, that's not in essence like his son. We are not in nature God, right? We are, we are creations. He is the creator. But it is in the perfect image of him as we were intended to be. That is the tent that we are all longing for. And if you are in Christ, God has resolved to do this for you and to you. So, are your resolutions part of God's resolutions for you? Because if not, you will find yourself at cross purposes to God. And we all know how that turns out. Read the book of Jonah. So go to him in making resolutions. Go to him and go to his word and ask him what he is doing with you so that you can get on board with it. Set aside your will to do the will of the Father and you will discover a better transformation than what you were probably seeking, a deeper serenity than what you were longing for. Number two, the second thing to remember when making resolution, that's what number two means. Sorry. I needed a break there to drink some water and I didn't know what the transition was. Number two, strive with all of your heart. Strive with all of your heart, your mind, your strength, your soul, but remember that we are striving from love and not for love. We are striving because we are loved, not in order to be loved. We are striving from a place of acceptance, not to be acceptable. When we fail at cutting some sin out of our life, or, or adding some, some righteous behavior, it leads, and it leads us to, to shame or despair, it's because we're operating from a mindset that our works make us right and acceptable and lovable to God. We're not delighting ourselves in the love of God, but we're expecting that God will be delighted in us because of our accomplishments. So Christians, the sooner we grasp this concept, the happier we will be, there is nothing Hear me, there is nothing that you contributed to God loving you. And there's nothing that you can contribute that will detract from his love for you. If you are in Christ, that is a true statement. If you are in Christ, you have God's love because when he looks at you, he sees Christ, his son, with whom he is well pleased. So for some of us, our striving, our effort will look like resting. We will stop trying to earn God's acceptance and we will just begin to enjoy him. Enjoy being loved by him. Enjoy being lovable because Christ has made us so. Enjoy knowing that the firm ground of Christ our salvation will not move from beneath us. And for some of us, our striving and effort will look like striving and effort. I may rather, I gotta get, say this right, I may rather not try than try and fail type of guy. It has plagued me my whole life. And the fear is that if I try and I fail, I will become unacceptable. I'll become unloved 
ultimately unlovable. And why do I think that? Because that is the way that the world loves. That's the way that the world loves. There is tons of grace for you until you cross that line or until you don't cross that line. But perfect love, the the type of love that God possesses and gives to us is unlosable. There's no line where if you cross it or fail to reach it, he will take his love away from you. This is the kind of love that makes someone live as though they have nothing to lose because they really have nothing to lose. And in a love relationship like this, what we're capable of doing or overcoming or quitting becomes incredible. There's a story that I'm fascinated with because I am not a Navy SEAL. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, It's a book that was written called Lone Survivor. It's the story of of this disastrous Navy SEAL mission. And there's a, the part that fascinates me is there's a moment when this SEAL team is confronted by an overwhelming force and they must retreat and the only escape route they have is over a cliff. And so they talk about all of their lack of options and then their commanding officer gives them the order to retreat over this cliff. And you know what they do? Without question, they throw themselves off the side of this mountain, right? They land, it's terrible, people are hurt, right? Well, they get caught by this force again, and they are forced to make the same choice, to retreat down the side of this, you know, 90 degree, or this 89 degree incline, and their commanding officer gives them their order, and they, without question or hesitation, throw themselves off this cliff. How could a human being do that? And here's why. They knew that their commanding officer had gone through all the same rigorous training that they had gone through. They knew that their commanding officer had eaten dirt and salt water and and had had borne the, the, the... tremendous difficulties of SEAL training, of, of ramping up for this particular mission. They knew that their, their commander knew all of the struggles that they were facing. And they knew that their commander had the best interest of these men, the best interest of each one of them at heart. So when he gave the order to do the unthinkable, they did it without question, without hesitation. Brothers and sisters, the captain of our salvation The captain of our salvation has trained with us and experienced our suffering and served us and protected us and rescued us and demonstrated his faithfulness to us time and time again as evidence of his great love for us. So when he says go to that scary place or give up that behavior or serve without recognition or bring the orphan into your home, even love your enemy, we will be able to throw ourselves off that metaphorical cliff knowing that it cannot separate us. It cannot separate us from the love of God and that all things, including our death, work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So whatever your resolution is, go after it like you are immortal. 
Go after it like you have nothing to lose because in some ways you are immortal. In some ways you have nothing to lose. Then the third thing to remember when making resolutions, we are conformed into the image of whatever we're beholding. We are conformed into the image of what we spend our time beholding. Frequently, we make resolutions with the best of intentions. But if we take honest appraisal of them, we may discover that they are rooted more in the flesh than in the spirit. Here's one that I battle with. I am fat. I know you're surprised, right? (laughs) I'm so svelte and and handsome, but I, I am. I am overweight. And pretty much every year, I make the, resol- the just sort of the general resolution to lose weight. And it's, it's, for, it's noble, right? I have a, a wife and a child and a church community to be helpful for, healthy for. I have a testimony to the unbeliever to consider regarding the fruit of the Spirit, specifically self-control. I've received this body as a temple to be stewarded well. And by losing weight, I can be of greater service to everyone around me, especially in times of emergency. These are all virtuous reasons, all virtuous reasons to get in shape, right? Do you know what my deepest reason is? I wanna look good. I wanna look good to me in the mirror. And I wanna look good to my wife, and I wanna look good to my culture, to, my, to the community. It's vanity. It's vanity. And why? Because the culture that I live in is a culture of vanity. It's what fills my eyes and my ears constantly. My heart gets filled with it. When was the last time you saw someone post a picture of themselves on Instagram, sitting around with a pizza-stained sweatshirt, gut sticking out, dog licking Cheeto dust from their fingers, watching a TV show that they know that they shouldn't be watching and captioning it with a confession of all their selfish shortcomings as a human being. Never is the answer. No, it's always the felt cute, might delete later picture that they've taken 50 times in a row to make sure that it's perfect. Or it's the photo of their very happiest day as a family. Or their very, their their most successful moment as a student or an employee. And I'm not trying to talk you guys out of social media, but why do we post in the first place? To get attention. Nobody posts with the intention that no one is going to read their post or like it or engage with it. So there's an undercurrent of vanity. And it's not just in social media. It's all throughout our culture. What's another word for virtue signaling? Saying that, that, you know, I'm more virtuous than I actually am? Vanity, another word for unwillingness to change or even examine your own opinions. Vanity, another word for having one standard for yourself and one for others. Politicians, sorry, vanity. (laughs) Listen, the Kardashians have built an empire capitalizing on vanity. It is the water that we swim in. So Christians, we must be perpetually 
filling our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts with Jesus if we are to be, res- if we are to be resolved to be conformed into the image of him. Like Pastor Ryan talked about, we must constantly be considering Jesus. And when I say this, this is hard for me. I don't, I'm, I'm not perfect. I know it's a surprise. But when I say this, we are to be looking to him as obsessively as we look at our Instagram and our Facebook and our Twitter and our news. Taking direction from him, submitting our will to his, learning the tone and the tenor of his voice, delighting in his character and his behavior, drinking him in instead of the waters of our surroundings. Asking him to purify our hearts and motives and to take away our character defects. And most of all, we need to entreat the Holy Spirit to do this and to show us Jesus and his glory. Because the scriptures say that is where transformation truly lies. Look what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Without Christ in our eyes, without Christ in our hearts, our resolutions will become laborsome, sorry, burdensome labors of self-glorification. We will be tempted to build little, little towers of Babel up to our own personal heavens. And we can start to believe ourselves to be masters of our own fate, attempting to captain our ship to a destiny of our own charting. And we run the risk of finding ourselves striving against the winds of God's will for us and discovering that our will has become like Captain Ahab. From Moby Dick, you should read the book, it's good. Destructively pursuing our particular white whale, whether it is health, or wealth, or fame, or whatever, rather than becoming a servant of God's mission to fill the earth with the fragrance of of Christ. But by keeping our eyes on Jesus, submitting to God's will, we can make resolutions that are trustworthy, confidently exercising our will and our effort to accomplish them. Perhaps a good resolution for us as a church this year is to more deeply wonder over, trust in, and enjoy Jesus. Enjoy the God of the universe. To make him the focus of our resolutions. Showing the world that there's nothing that we value more and that there is nothing more valuable than Jesus. The world needs transformation, amen? We've seen, I don't know how you've lived through the last two years and not felt like like something needs to be transformed. But it's the revelation of the glory of Jesus that will bring about the kind of transformation that it needs. And one of the very best things that we can do, and I know that I'm the worship pastor, so take my words with a grain of salt. (laughs) One of the best ways that we enjoy the Lord is through worship. 
during our times of corporate singing, we seek to delight ourselves in the God who is delighted in us. We want to worship with abandon. We want to proclaim who he is and what he has done, not just to those around us, not just as a profession of truth, but to our own souls. We want to fill our eyes and our heart and our mind and our lips with his glory. I'll end with this. There are few people in history who have influenced American evangelicalism to the degree that Jonathan Edwards has. As a philosopher and a theologian, there are few who can match his intellectual capacity. His ability to analyze and interpret the the nature of both the external world and the internal world according to a rigorously biblical framework is beyond compare. I have never read somebody who can do it better. And even in his time, he was massively influential. He was the theological champion of the first great awakening. And his impact on the, the second great awakening cannot be overstated. His works are directly linked to the rapid expansion and eventual explosion of Protestant missionaries around the world starting in the 1800s. And even today, people on the Gospel Coalition, all the the big name Christian ministers, there are few who do not claim Jonathan Edwards as one of their primary influences. Yet there was a time when Jonathan Edwards was just a guy. He was a student at Yale. He was unsure about who he was, whether he was cut out for ministry or for marriage. He was unsure about whether he was a Christian or not. And in the midst of these struggles, he began writing 70 resolutions that he committed to read over once a week. Now, they are incredible, and I suggest that you read all of them. We're not going to read all 70 of them here. But they are. They are incredible. And he read them every week and recommitted himself to them. But the thing that I, it's the introduction to this process as he was writing in his journal. It was the introduction to these resolutions that I want us to focus on and I want to encourage us with. He writes this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. May this be our attitude in all of our endeavors this year, church. Humble dependence upon God in bold resolutions for the glory of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. for your love for us. We thank you for your resolutions on our behalf. We thank you that you have liberated us from the bondage of struggling and striving to be acceptable before you. 
we thank you that you have done all that is necessary to secure our heavenly dwelling. When we are finally free from this earthly tent, you have done all that is necessary to inherit that which is made without human hands. Lord, we long to serve you. We long to, to do well. Remind us in those moments that it is not in order for you to love us, but because you love us, because you have given us your spirit, because you are making all things new that we can participate in that process. Free us from the, the burden that our resolutions become. And Lord, if there are any here who are not in Christ, if there are any here that do not belong to you, would you, by your grace, by your love, by your Holy Spirit, push them over the edge into desperate, hopeful faith in you, knowing that you have accomplished all that is necessary to reconcile them to God. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are our confident assurance and our victory. We, love, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen.